Welcome to a new episode of my Dear Kitchen in Helsinki podcast. My guest today in this first episode of 2021 is Daria Krivonos from University of Helsinki. Daria and I talked about the need for migrant farm workers in the EU and Finland, their working conditions, what COVID-19 situation reveals, and where intervention is needed. You can read Daria's article about this topic titled Ukrainian Farm Workers and Finland's Regular Army of Labor on rustar.fi. I hope that our discussion increases your interest on this crucial topic. As always, special thanks to my dear friend Ufuk Ejiman for the sound editing. All right. Hello, Daria. And Hi. Uh, thank you for um, accepting to do this interview. This is this is a very special episode for me uh, because up until this point, um, all the previous episodes uh, that I did with different uh, guests, I knew the topic more or less um, uh, up to a certain depth. Especially, um, especially food sovereignty. I'm working on myself, mm-hmm. but this topic I myself have been just reading uh, and. My interest, uh, of course, got increased uh, last spring uh, with the COVID situation. Uh, so this is going to be very informative for me uh, as well. And I hope for um, it's going to open new discussions with uh, the listeners too. Um, but before we dive into the topic, can you introduce yourself a little, your academic background, your current research, which is which is a bit different than the topic this today's topic but also your interest in today's topic yes well thank you so much for the invitation first of all i'm really delighted to be here and uh, i'm really happy to be part of this podcast series and myself i myself learned a lot from your podcast i listened to other episodes and i really really learned a lot about food sovereignty for example oh, um, <laughs> yes Uh, So I'm a sociologist based in the University of Helsinki, and I'm interested in the questions of migration, labor, and racialization. So these are my main uh, research interests. So I'm interested in the production of difference among laboring populations and the ways migration status or uh, processes of racialization, that is the production of difference, intersects with... uh, people's uh, labor market positions and the ways these processes produce people's labor market positions. So my PhD was about uh, young Russian-speaking migrants living in Helsinki and their labor trajectories and experiences of racism. Uh, I did interviews with these young people, but I also did observations in uh, in the employment offices, uh, in welfare centers and integration courses. For example, I have written about how um, young Russian-speaking migrants are racialized, that is, they are seen as uh, uh, different from Finnish population, and uh, how this production of difference leads them to take uh, uh, labor market positions below their skills and qualifications. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I defended my PhD in 2019, and um, I'm currently a postdoc uh, uh, in the University of Helsinki again, and my project explores Ukrainian labor migration to Poland. Because uh, I'm interested in that because Ukraine offers a major supply of labor to the European Union, and Poland is the country that issues the highest number of 
work visas in the European Union. So in 2019, uh, only 600,000 first residence permits uh, based on work were issued by Poland and they mainly went to Ukrainian workers. So it's a very under-researched area and geography in the European Union. So I really wanted to go there mm -hmm. and I did go there last spring. Um, I did, uh, I managed to do some interviews with uh, young Ukrainian workers uh, but then, because of the coronavirus situation, I had to come back to Finland very quickly because the borders were closing. Yeah. And I myself learned about that through the news. <laughs> so I had to change my ticket two times uh, during one day. Uh, I had to come back to Finland. Um, and then uh, all the discussion around borders has started in Finland. Mm. So the borders had to be closed to prevent the spread of the coronavirus infection. But then the discussion started also who the borders should remain open for, especially uh, it was connected to the uh, discussion around labor and migrant workers mm -hmm. and the discussion around agriculture and food supply. So uh, suddenly all the discourse around migration change towards migrant workers as being key actors who would now secure the supply of food. Mm -hmm. And if we, if you could check, for example, the uh, Border Patrol's uh, website, Raya, mm -hmm. you would see that they, they listed the categories of people who could cross the borders during that time. Um, and among diplomats, uh, so these are kind of the winners of globalization, these are the people for whom the borders are always open. Uh, these were also migrant workers for whom the borders had to remain open. So I thought that was a very interesting situation. And uh, the other interesting thing is that the whole discourse around migrant labor and the borders was framed in terms of security, but not as we are typically used to um, kind of a lot of migration discourses associate migration with a security threat, but now migrant workers would uh, be the key actors would, which would protect the security of food in Finland. So the discourse has really changed very quickly. And I thought that was a very interesting situation when the borders had to remain open for migrant workers, which also then shows that borders uh, never remain completely sealed for migrants because we are so much dependent on migrant labor. So this is the story of how I became interested in the in this topic. And of course, the, the, it was about the um, Ukrainian migration that uh, everybody was talking about in relation to agricultural work. Yeah. That because the borders were closed, Finland couldn't get access to Ukrainian agricultural workers that used to come to Finland every year to do agricultural and farming work. Um, and um, yes, then they introduced the quotas, first 10,000 people and then more, that we have to get these people to keep our food security uh, in order. Um, so the story is that I'm not really like, like food and agricultural work is not my field of expertise, but the kind of 
it's a little it's a bit of a spin off of my research interests so at that time i decided to contact some of the ukrainian workers who who came to finland yeah and we're going to talk about uh, that uh, very much in details i want to uh, get into that but uh, before that i want to just first um uh, frame the discussion a bit in a general format like why is there a need for migrant farm workers around Europe? And you talked a little bit, you talked about Ukraine and uh, Poland, Poland giving visas, but in general, which are generally the receiving countries uh, and which are the countries that send the workers? Are there this, is there this kind of uh, clear separation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the main uh, thing is that there is a downward price pressure and competition Uh, between producers of food, which means that the producers and growers um, use all possible means to cut the costs, mm. uh, such as dependence uh, on low wages. Mm. And we know from uh, previous research that uh, a lot of agricultural workers have irregular or insecure migrant status, and um, they are often undocumented uh, And or they are recruited as seasonal workers with visas that allow them to remain in the country only during the harvest period, or they don't allow them to change the labor sectors, or they don't allow them to change the employer. So this kind of structural condition of dependency on employment and the situation of illegality or extreme precariousness of this migrant workforce allows Uh, precisely to depress the wages and keep uh, laborers um, kind of uh, disenfranchised. But if we look into um, top agri-food producers and exporters, such as Germany, Spain, the Netherlands, for example, the Netherlands, uh, 7% of GDP comes from export of vegetables and flowers, So all these countries, uh, and along with other uh, European countries, they are really dependent on migrant labor. Most of this uh, of the workforce employed in agricultural work um, comes from uh, migrant workforce, up to like 90% mm-hmm. in certain cases. And mainly these are the workers coming from uh, Eastern Europe, um, Romania and Bulgaria, kind of the quite um, popular countries, also Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are the sending countries, at least in the European Union. Uh, and the other reason why there is such a dependence on migrant labor is that quite often the national workforce is protected by the welfare state, uh, which increases the bargaining power of workers. So it means that they can uh, rather receive the unemployment benefits, for example, rather than going to do full-time work, which is really, really difficult. Like agricultural work is one of the most dangerous types of work, the most exploited types of work. Uh, So the national population is protected by the welfare state while the uh, people coming from uh, Romania and Bulgaria after the uh, socialist welfare states have collapsed. These people have no other means but to sell their labor power and to migrate to the countries with higher wages and labor migration becomes their means of subsistence. Um, Now, I found you 
uh, on through your uh, article on rasdare.fi, uh, which is uh, anti-racism research network, uh, network um, and it was about the Ukrainian uh, workers. And we're going to talk about that uh, in a minute. But uh, I just want to first ask you about something which also appears in the uh, title as well. So you talk about reserve army of labor and regular army of labor. Now, can you explain these a little, and then we're going to continue with the working conditions uh, later. Yes. Uh, I take these terms from uh, Sarafari's work, uh, who, that's, that's his um, um, a Marxist feminist scholar that focuses on care work and migrant care work, um, but Sarafari takes these terms from Marx, uh, so the term reserve army of labor means uh, surplus population of the unemployed or underemployed people. So this all the people who are unemployed. So and unemployment, uh, those people who do research on labor, they know that unemployment is a structural feature of capitalist economies, which allows to keep the wages down. Mm -hmm. So because there are just so many people who are ready to do this work allows... <laughs> the capitalists to put the wages down. So uh, when we talk about reserve army of labor, it means that these people are taken out of this reserve or this pool of labor during the times of need and high production and laid off when there is no longer need for their labor. Uh, and uh, migrant workers represent this high share of the reserve army of labor. So their first last hired and first fired, yeah. <laughs> uh, kind of this uh, type of logic. Uh, but then uh, Sarah Faris observed in her research on migrant care workers during the time of global financial crisis that the sectors of care and health work, uh, which are the highest employers of migrant women workers, haven't been affected by the global economic crisis and instead have been even expanded. Yeah. But kind of the idea of the reserve army of labor is that during the time of crisis, there is no need for this labor anymore. So you can easily fire these people, get rid of them. But uh, I just, but uh, as I said, that then uh, Sarah Faris noticed that there is a constant demand for care workers and health workers, regardless of the time of crisis. So there is always the need for these workers. Um, and so she says that this is not a reserve army of labor, but the regular army of labor. These are the people, the laboring populations that are always occupying these uh, labor sectors, uh, regardless, is it the time of crisis or not, because there is a constant demand mm -hmm. for this uh, type of workers. Um, so then I was just thinking that and observing this whole coronavirus situation that this, despite the economic downturns of this crisis and the growing unemployment rates, uh, there is a continuous and urgent shortage of labor in the sectors such as agriculture that sustain our everyday lives, such as, for example, seasonal work. And um, Marxist feminist scholars use this term life-making labor. So they say that this is the labor that we need to sustain our day-to-day -day lives. So we always need this labor because we need to stay alive. Mm. Um, so I was just drawing some parallels with this previous research and thinking that migrant workers 
are this regular army of labor in the Finnish agricultural sector. Because even during the time of crisis and closed borders, there was little possibility to recruit national workers to do this kind of work. Um, well, yeah. So now moving on to the um, working conditions itself. Um, I want to first talk uh, in general about EU and then come uh, to Finland in, in specifically. Um, so, and you talked a little bit about, um, especially the situation we, we talked about the reason why they come and things like that. But uh, when we talk about their actual working conditions, uh, what are, what what is the, the, those conditions uh, generally for, for migrant farm workers in EU? And what differs uh, between different countries, if there are such uh, differences? And also maybe you can already say a little bit about what COVID-19 specifically revealed about these conditions. Yes, so agriculture is one of the top risk sectors for unfair work. And the problem is that quite often it remains uh, invisible for the public eye. And I myself encountered this uh, situation, for example, when I was in Poland, but also like here in Finland, sometimes getting access to these farms and uh, which are situated far away from uh, the places where we live as researchers or as activists, uh, these places are quite often difficult to reach. And this is why uh, some topics in migration research are over-researched because it's so easy to get access to those places because of this infrastructure. And my colleague from Elisa Pascucci, uh, Elisa Pascucci from University of Helsinki wrote about this question of over-research. Mm. Um, well, yeah, well, I just uh, moved <laughs> away from the question. But so the point is that um, it's sometimes quite difficult to get access to those places. Uh, and despite the talk about the mechanization of our economies, uh, hands and arms of workers, uh, of agricultural workers, remain the most reliable tools for picking. And actually research shows that it's more expensive to introduce um, these mechanical tools and all the equipment uh to to agriculture it's more expensive rather than employing uh migrant workers mm-hmm. um so as i said this is a very labor intensive working conditions because everything is picked by hand it's a very demanding and monotonous form of work outdoors work has to be done outside regardless of weather conditions And one of the things is that people told me that they have to bring a lot of clothes with them uh, from from Ukraine, for instance. And this is why they prefer to come by buses, because there is no any limitation to how much weight you can bring. Because you have to bring really uh, different types of clothes, because sometimes people stay for six months Mm. and the weather conditions uh, change throughout the year, as we know. Uh, then this physically is a physically demanding work that comes from with health hazards um, because of the exposure to chemicals in greenhouses, um, and that there is this need for temporal uh, flexibility uh, among workers. Mm. Um, but well, then we—I don't know if we want to move to um, what uh, my 
interviewees told me about their working conditions in Finland. Yes, but yeah. sure. But, you interviewed the Ukrainian workers who were coming or planning to come, at least. Uh, to yes, or, or who already had the experience of coming yeah. to Finland earlier. So it's quite interesting that the whole um, kind of conversation was framed around this issue of luck, of how lucky or unlucky they were uh, with their employers, which means that there is a really high dependency on employers in this sector, because these are employers that issue the visas and which makes workers highly dependent on their employers, because then you can't change the employer or you can't change the labor sector. These are also the employers that quite often provide the um, housing, which means that you're also dependent on employer in terms of housing. So these are really asymmetrical power relations which are produced by immigration uh, control and the, the fact that the citizenship status of these people is called a migrant, which means that uh, their staying in the country depends on their employers. And if, if you leave the employer, you can be deported. Uh, and this is why uh, a lot of people talked rather carefully about their employment conditions because um, they would fear that they could be fired or not recruited again the following year if they complain too much about their work uh, employers. Uh, but then the structuring feature is that this is the labor sector with very low pay. In Finland, uh, the pay is 8.57 euros per hour, so eight and a half euros per hour. But in practice, people told me that they are receiving even less money because uh, some of the money, some of some sum of money can be deducted from uh, their wages, and this money go to this money goes to employment agencies. And this is something that I learned as well about the hiring agencies. But actually, other research shows that the agricultural sector operates through subcontractors and hiring agencies to which workers have to pay in order to get a job. Okay. Hmm. Yes. So workers uh, can pay from starting from 300 euros to 1000 euros to come to Finland to work. So they're paying for the possibility to come to Finland to work. And this is because uh, apparently it's uh, the connection between the employer and the workers, like the farmer and the workers, is not very stable. I think quite often we tend to think about these flows of migrant labor, that it's just so easy, that there is a high demand and there is a high supply of labor. But in practice, um, there is a need for these intermediaries, which are then taken, this role is taken by private agencies who make profit out of that yeah. and this leads to a situation when there is not only that these companies make profit out of that but also there are fake hiring agencies which just take money from the people but don't provide any employment contracts so are these agencies uh, middle agencies are there in the original in their original country uh, of, of living and and i mean who is, is there any regulation on these agencies? 
So these uh, companies are based in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And for example, one person told me that he comes from a city of 200,000 people. And he said that there are 10 small agencies and two big agencies that um, hire workers only to Finland. Okay. <laughs> um, I think that that's quite uh, striking. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so uh, I was also about to say about the frauds and the fact that there are these fake hiring companies that uh, just take money from the people but don't give uh, any employment contracts. And I was also contacted by some people who then asked me to check if the employment contract is correct. And then I would call the farmer, which was written in the employment contract. But then the farmer said that I never issued this contract to these people. Uh And that was a really, in a way, kind of, to me, I felt it was a very surrealistic situation that kind of, I just called the worker And I'm now calling the farmer, what's the problem kind of of connecting these two people together? But apparently it's not so easy (laughs) to connect. And this idea of this uh, supply chain of labor, uh, it's very fragile. And uh, there is really a need of connection and very transparent connection between the workers and the farmers so that the workers wouldn't get into these situations when they spend um, really big sums of money to this uh, fake employment agencies. So this person, he's, he had the experience of three frauds. So he wasted like 900 euros together with his friends um, while trying to get to Finland mm. as a worker. Mm. Can they make, uh, um, how to say, like, uh, is there any any channel that uh, they can report these issues? I mean, is there anything being made about these frauds or are they also not so much um, are they maybe scared to follow up on that uh, too i mean um, officially in finland it's illegal to use uh, these kind of agencies but i think there is evidence of uh, the farmers also using these kind of agencies when recruiting workers um, but these companies operate in ukraine and i just don't know i asked my uh, lawyer friends how does it work but he's, they said that from the perspective of finland um it's a it's a very tricky situation and there is little way to dep- to influence this situation because it takes place in ukraine mm-hmm. um well but the fact is that finland still profits from this kind of uh, uh illegal arrangement because uh, all the costs of uh, getting information and uh, getting connected to the farmers through so many mistakes these costs um, are taken by the workers themselves yeah Mm. Um, yes so this hiring agencies is uh, apparently quite a uh, widely spread issue not only in Finland but also in other countries but then uh, the people also told me that there are different ways to downgrade the uh, salaries of the workers and the working hours are really unregulated uh, in in those instances for example one person told me that if he worked 200 hours a month and for which he was paid six hours six euros per hour, which is lower than the official wage, 
and he would earn 1,200 euros a month. But then the farmer would divide 1,200 euros by the official hourly wage of eight uh, and a half euros. And then it turns that out that uh, he only worked 140 hours. Yeah. Uh, and in, uh, on papers, it's all correct and nice, but because it's so much um, regulated by this informal relations between the farmer and the worker, that it can get really tricky. Mm-hmm. But then there are also different kind of little thefts, uh, which these people also told me about, that during the harvest, harvest season, uh, workers are paid by kilos of uh, the fruit or like mainly berries that they collected or by boxes. And the box is supposed to be three kilos. Uh, so you're paid by box. Uh, but they said that the full boxes can be heavier than three kilos. So there are always these kind of small instances of depressed wages mm. of, of people. But then, of course, I mean, these are the, 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 and these are the ongoing uh, conditions uh, in general. But how about, especially, I mean, when we talk about the pandemic situation uh, during COVID-19, there's also the health-related uh, questions. I mean, we all, during the spring, we were all in our homes, if you can, you know, trying to work at, uh, from home, if you can. And But these are, I mean, uh, in a farm, so many people are working together. And uh, how about their, in, during the pandemic, their health situation um, was secured or was it secured? How was it like that? And also, if they got sick with the mm-hmm. uh, COVID, I mean, do they have any kind of uh, healthcare possibility? Uh, for mm-hmm. here in Finland, an Ukrainian worker. But in general, uh, um, if you come as a seasonal worker, you're supposed to pay your own health insurance. So you're paying your own private health insurance. And quite often, we know, well, I mean, if you traveled as a non-EU citizen somewhere, quite often it turns out that this insurance doesn't cover <laughs> practically anything. Mm-hmm. Um and from previous research, we also know that when the worker gets ill, their strategy is to go to the employer and ask for help from the employer. So people don't go to the medical institutions because, I mean, also those places are so are in such remote areas. Mm. And even for transportation, they can be dependent on the farmers. So this... This is not like in a very independent situation that you can just take your car and go go see a doctor. Mm-hmm. So that's a general condition that uh, you should have your own uh, private health insurance, which also is the same for students in Finland. So we have this idea of Finland of a universalist welfare state, but in case of the seasonal workers, they're not protected by the uh, Finnish wel- welfare state. But then when I ask them about all these regulations regarding the quarantine, um, people just said that uh, there is no time to wait because the the season is coming and you can't just wait two weeks of quarantine and then you you are not paid for these two weeks uh, while waiting for the right time to start. Um, I didn't get... I hope nobody got ill among the people which I interviewed, but 
we know from other cases in Romania, for example, um, there were protests among farm workers who demanded uh, better and safer conditions uh, regarding their health because um, people were contracted coronavirus in, in those uh, situations. Mm-hmm. And also people live together, they don't have private spaces. So it's, it's a really risky risky situation that the virus can be easily contracted but i was also observing this whole discourse in the european union regarding the health and safety was mainly the safety of the national population Uh, the discourse was that well we should make sure that these people don't bring coronavirus Mm -hmm. uh, to our countries while there was much less discussion about how can we ensure that these people have safe working conditions and and uh, and are protected. Yeah. So, talking about all these working conditions and the need and all, what does this all tell you about labor and movements within the EU? As, mm. as a summary. Or... Um. Well. <laughs> I mean, I would just like to uh, pinpoint that there is this uh, structural reliance on migrant labor in certain sectors. Uh, and quite often, it's precisely the migrant status of these people, which I explained to you that because they're dependent on their visas, they're dependent on their employers. This is why they're structurally forced to accept certain working conditions. And they're not part of the labor unions, they're not part of the welfare state. So people are on their own together with their informal networks and their own kind of means to protest and to uh, demand better employment conditions. But also the whole idea, even if we talk about uh, labor mobility within the EU, that labor exploitation becomes possible through inequalities that exist within the European Union itself. The, The idea that you can extract labor from uh, poor countries, the countries which have uh, poor le- levels of um, wages, for example. Mm. And I was going to ask uh, before, but I uh, skipped. Uh, but actually, uh, especially during the, the well, the COVID nineteen crisis, um, the farmer, the farm, the, these migrant farm workers' identification in some cases, and there were some articles discussing that uh, from unskilled to critical workers. Mm-hmm. So for example, I mean, I mean, what does this tell uh, again about labor and, and you know, all mm-hmm. these workers? Yeah, this is exactly, this is absolutely true that uh, the whole discourse of skills was uh, turned upside down during the COVID-19 pandemia. Um, and uh, so we, st- we suddenly started talking about all this uh, workers that sustain life and again I'm referring to this uh, term by uh, a scholar Titi Batarchaya, uh, life making labor I mean all this labor we need to, that sust- to sustain our everyday lives and lives in general uh, but quite often these jobs are labeled as low skilled but this is, but we also know from research that the whole distinction between highly skilled and low skilled was always used to legitimize wage inequalities. And as feminist scholars would say that um, 
quite often the jobs which are done by racialized workers, by non-white workers and female workers, they are devalued because social reproduction means that the reproduction of every our everyday lives, all the labor and effort that is needed to reproduce our everyday lives, such as having food on the table or like uh, somebody needs to cook this food, uh, all this labor is devalued because social reproduction is devalued. Yeah. So this low-skilled or unskilled labor has been brought to the center of the discussion uh, during COVID-19 pandemia. Um, and this is exactly true that we can easily maybe survive without so-called bullshit jobs. <laughs> and this is the term by David Graeber. Mm -hmm. uh, and I saw a lot of discussion that we can certainly survive without uh, some marketing <laughs> people. And I mean, I don't have anything against this, but just the pandemic situation showed that what we really need is this labor to make our lives possible. And the fact that this labor is often uh, lay, uh, labeled as unskilled or low-skilled allows to put the wages down among these workers. Mm -hmm. And this is why suddenly all the discussion started that, oh, we have to increase the wages of these people. These workers are our heroes. And here we are just, uh, I don't know, a bit more than a half a year later, we've completely forgotten about this discussion. Mm. Um, now, the next question um, well, you are not a, a, an expert on food or food security yourself, but I still wish to hear your opinion. Um, this reliance on migrant farm workers, what does it tell you about food security? Uh, and if you want to also, if now that you said you learned a little bit about food sovereignty, uh, <laughs> what does it tell you about food security and sovereignty in EU? Well, yeah, as you noted correctly, I'm not the expert on food security. I think there are uh, certainly better researchers who can talk about that. But from my perspective, it is that we should talk about who bears the costs and who provides, um, who guarantees this food security. Mm -hmm. uh, because quite often, um, I forgot to tell you that uh, to pay for this hiring agencies and to pay for the travel to get to Finland, because uh, these workers pay their housing and travel to Finland themselves, uh, they acquire debt, um, which they pay with the salaries that they then get in Finland. So this is a really kind of a vicious circle. Uh, so the point about food security is that really who bears the costs of uh, this food security, and we can see that quite often uh, these are the migrant workers themselves who provide this food security. But also I think that the example of these hiring agencies, it just shows how fragile these supply chains are, supply chains of labor, that it's not this kind of idea of a flowing labor that the labor just comes here. I mean, that the, the fact that these intermediary companies exist, it shows that it's not so easy. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, yeah, so the fragility of the supply chains, uh, which I would like also to highlight that our food security relies on this very fragile supply chains. Uh, but also there is another example uh, related to COVID-19 pandemic is this uh, feminist scholar Minha Pham. Uh, she writes about 
um, mask, face mask production during the COVID-19 pandemic. And she says that it's only a couple of places in the world that produce uh, personal protective equipment. And this labor is done by uh, non-white women in... Uh, uh, yes, uh, it's done by non-white women and kind of the whole global supply of uh, this personal protective equipment comes from really a couple of places in the world and it is done by non-white women. So the point is that um, how we really re rely on these very fragile supply chains. Yeah, and, and there's always, um, especially when it comes to young people, we think all oh, the young people or the kids don't, don't know where their food is coming from these days. But actually we also, I mean, adults, we adults don't know most of the time where our food is coming from or even how our food is coming to our supermarkets and um I think many people know that, yeah, there are people coming, uh, you know, these migrant uh, workers coming and doing some job, but there's always the idea, well, it's happening. I mean, mm -hmm. details are not known, but, uh, but I think um, just like how it attracted my attention, I'm, I'm hoping that it also attracted, uh, thanks to many articles in many different uh, newspapers, um, the, the, what COVID-19 uh, put on surface was uh, known, now known by a bit uh, bigger audience. Um, but it also now connects uh, this to uh, my next question, which is now when the borders were closed, and you know, will these workers be able to come or not? But there is work already to be done in in the in the fields in Finland. And there have been calls or ads to to people to, in Finland maybe to come and work. Although, uh, as you said, I mean, it was also there was a discussion about hiring completely unrelated people and then spending all the time first to educate them or train them mm -hmm. on this. That was all these discussions, but I've seen some of the, you know, seasonal work uh, ads, and there are all these happy white people working clean in a field, like, oh, this is so mm -hmm. beautiful and so happy. Like, I found myself uh, working in this field. Um, no, now, and then there's the reality, not just, uh, I mean, there's a reality of working in a farm. I, I went to um, Lastila Farm in Tulsula, uh, working was working with Omama Food Co-op several times. It is hard work. It's not like, hello, this is so nice. I, it is nice for me. I, I like, I yeah. love uh, being a little bit myself, but it is hard work. But then mm -hmm. there's also all these other working condition reality of the farm workers, the migrant farm workers. So what do you think about this clean, lovely, peaceful image versus mm -hmm. reality? Yeah, well, as you said, it's quite uh, straightforward um, difference between the, the image and um, the reality. And uh, for a long time, uh, picking strawberries, for example, was done in Finland by um, working class populations or um, students would use it as uh, summer jobs. But then with the increase of the standards of life and it just became also cheaper to hire workers from other countries but the point is that the people told me that they earn thousand euros a month 
their salary is 1,000 euros a month. I mean, how can you survive with this money if you live in Finland? Mm. And this can only exist because these people are not living in Finland because nobody would be able to uh, survive with this sum of money uh, living in Helsinki, like, I mean, paying your own rent uh, and these kind of things. But also, the, if you check the job uh, advertisements of, um, or job placements, of uh, strawberry picking, for example. I mean, you have to leave uh, in the farm. So you have to leave your home and you have to leave your family and you and you have to spend several months or a couple of months uh, living in a different area. So we should also, I think we should ask who bears the costs of the social reproduction and the fact that people leave their families and they, they leave their children in uh, in the whole in their home countries we should ask who takes care of these people there and uh, the fact that people don't see their families for a, for several months a year uh, while they're working for a different country um you were you, you were saying when you were talking about your um interviews uh, with the Ukrainian uh, workers that, for example, some of them didn't, uh, was a bit reluctant to tell very openly everything because, you know, they were maybe scared of losing the, their job or the possibility of coming back. So then how, are there are there any channels that these uh, migrant farm workers can use to ask for help or the, for the improvement of their conditions? Are there any, uh, do they have any collectives that are trying to work on these uh, issues or are they just, you know, it's maybe it's so, so, um, I can say vital that they keep the job that they are not even asking at all improve. Mm. Yeah, well, despite everything I said, um, I didn't want to make this image of these workers as uh, this kind of uh, victims or voiceless people. Uh, apparently, and we know that um, these workers can, can confront their employers. And one one person told me that uh, he actually uh, confronted the farmer regarding the uh, poor working conditions. Um, well, but then I. I don't know much about that, but I just wonder about the role of the trade unions in Finland and how much they're willing to protect the labor force, which is not situated in Finland. Mm -hmm. So I think we really need to ask um, these uh, structural circumstances that make it, can make it more difficult for people to make complaints. But there are other examples, as I mentioned earlier, in um, in May, in Bonn, in Germany, Romanian workers were striking and uh, demanding better working conditions uh, and better health conditions because uh, coronavirus. I mean, they got coronavirus, and there were even some deaths uh, in the meat industry in Germany among Romanian workers. Mm -hmm. So there is um, some organizing going on. So. To, to now summarize and finalize uh, the discussion, my final question about, now we analyzed, uh, we talked in details on working conditions, reasons, COVID-19 mm -hmm. general. Um, then to move forward, to, to do this, to, well, to make it better, <laughs> to improve, mm -hmm. what kind of um, interventions do you think 
can be made um, uh, in the working conditions of the migrant workers, but in but in labor and movements in general within the EU. Your mm -hmm. Um, well, when I asked the workers themselves uh, and I asked them what uh, changes they would like to see, um, they just told me that they wanted the laws to be respected. So their demand was very, very basic in a way that they just wanted the laws to be uh, respected, which means that um, being paid the, the salary, which is promised to them, uh, at least eight euros and a half, then to have coffee breaks uh, every two hours and to being paid overtime because quite often the workers are not being paid overtime if they're working, if they're paid by hour. Mm -hmm. uh, but also I would say that the seasonal certificates, I forgot to tell, tell you about uh, season, seasonal certificates that if you want to come as a seasonal worker in Finland, you have to pay like a really big sums of money to get a certificate. Um, yes, I just opened. So the electronic application for the first residence permit is 410 euros and the paper application is 600 euros. Mm. So this is the residence permit for seasonal work. Uh, it's If you're going to work for more than three months, you have to pay this uh, amount of money to, to, to get the certificate. Uh, so, yeah, the prices for residence permits are also very high. Um, but also, I think it's very important that we talk about the transparency through the supply chain. So they have to be really transparent and standardized recruitment process that I think the country that hires this labor has to be responsible for the recruitment procedures so that these procedures are not taken by the these private uh, recruitment agencies or by these uh, fake agencies mm -hmm. at all. Um, but in general, this um, agricultural sector and labor in the agricultural sector, because it's one of the most dangerous uh, labor sectors, it's closely connected with migration policies in general. And people with irregular status or insecure status will always be more vulnerable to exploitative working conditions because they don't have access to other jobs uh, or they can't complain because they will be uh, taken to the police, for instance. So if migration policies will continue to produce undocumented populations or populations with um, irregular status, uh, exploitation in the labor market will continue. And this is nothing new. It's a really well-documented connection between insecure status of migrants, um, their dependence on visas, and this connection with uh, poor working conditions. Well, yeah, this was uh, very, as I said in the beginning, very interesting uh, discussion for me. Um, I mean, I, I even though you, you said already in the beginning that this specific topic is not your uh, research, but you already, uh, for me, uh, gained me so much more to to continue also to make research. And I and I hope uh, our listeners also uh, got this info and now can, are more interested in finding out and and hopefully even though even if they are not working themselves in this uh, in anything related to food we are all eating that food that uh, mm -hmm. people 
are finding hard to, to work on. So hopefully some kind of collective action uh, and from the people, from the consumers at least themselves. Uh, I mean, if they also push a little bit um, uh, about all these issues uh, that make it happen uh, to have to eat that food, then mm-hmm. I think it's going to be uh, even even uh, more possible, maybe, uh, to improve the conditions. But these are all my questions uh, for today. Um, do you have any final words? Any final comments? Well, my point would be that we should really think about who bears the costs uh, of uh, food security and uh, this kind of problematic um, distinction between low-skilled jobs and highly-skilled jobs, because what we can really learn from this uh, pandemic is that quite often these jobs, which are deemed low-skilled, are really integral to our survival as a community, as a society. Um So I think that this pandemic really we can learn a lot of lessons about what what kind of jobs are really deemed necessary. Uh, well, and yes, and we, it's also the good point to think about uh, migration policies and how migration policies can structurally produce this dependence of workers on their employers. And this is exactly that allows to push the wages down among these workers and allow um, competition among food producers and the fact that we can buy food in the stores at uh, lower prices. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you again one more time. Thank you. And um, good luck with your research. And I hope you can find more time to also specifically uh, do more about this, uh, specifically farm workers issue, because it is... uh, one of the most important uh, part of the general uh, migrant uh, labor um, topic. But, um, and good luck with winter. <laughs> yes, thanks. <laughs> um, so, okay, bye. Thank you very much. Bye.